Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 171 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday night, June 25th, 2020, and the damn virus is surging, so put on your mask. I'm Bobby Chesney and I've had it. I'm Steve Vladek and, and you know, maybe we reopened a little soon there, eh, Governor Abbott? Oh, man. Uh, uh, but, but most importantly, before, before we do anything else, happy birthday, Bobby. Oh, thank you. Uh, oh, no, oh, no. Before, before we wallow in the, in the misery of 2020. Seriously, um, I, raised my, I raised my HEB orange seltzer to you. Okay, well, I've got my customary evening recording Fire Eagle from Austin Beer Works. There you and go. And I also have the remains of my birthday carrot cake. Oh. Right here. So, Excellent. Mmm, um, delicious. So you're a carrot cake person. I did not know that about you. My favorite cakes. Carrot cake and tres leches. Tres leches. Oh, I love tres leches. Mm. Yeah. Um, that's just what listeners tuned in to hear. What Listen, else? I, mean, I feel like, you know, I feel like over the course of 171 episodes, people build up, you know, tidbits about us. So Bobby is a carrot cake and tres leches man. That's right. I do love those. That, that yeah. hardly exhausts my appreciation for desserts. I definitely have a sweet tooth. So, um, I mean, the, the, in that regard, you are like the total opposite of one of my other best friends, uh, Andrew Weller, who's not listening to this. Um, Andrew is like um, ultimate foodie, um, except for dessert. He is like gung-ho anti-dessert with one exception, and the exception is chocolate chip cookies. Well, I gotta say, if you're gonna have only one and only one dessert category item, chocolate chip cookies is not a bad choice in my opinion. Um, no, no, I, I go for ice cream. I, I'd stick with the cookies, I think, if I had to choose. Um, Sounds like a frivolity topic. <laughs> Ice cream or cookies? Or you can go to Milk and Cookies in our neighborhood and get both because they put the cookie dough yep. in the ice cream. Don't think I don't know all about that firsthand. <laughs> don't we all? Have you ever had the vanilla brioche at Milk and Cookies? Uh, I'm aware it exists. I, I, I have mostly limited myself to the ice cream. Yeah, it's, a, it's not healthy, uh, but it's, it's awfully good. Speaking of things that aren't healthy, we have a lot of We've got um, a lot so of it's been, it's been six whole days since we recorded it. It feels like six months. Um, the, uh, this, this, you know, possibly final season for this particular topic has, uh, actually, I, I say that, you know, even if Trump loses, no one should think like this all just goes away. No, right? it's not going to go away. New characters, new plot lines, new castings. Trumplandia will continue. Um, we're going to talk about the Flynn decision, the, Berman removal, the Bolton ruling, and the Veterans Memorial Preservation Act, uh, the, the old VMPA or VMPA, if you like. And that's just our first segment. That's the first segment. Our second section, we'll, we'll touch base with the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which had a session this week I was privileged to be part of. Uh, not a ton to say there, but I do want to just reflect on what, what is happening in the, under the heading of surveillance and the tension between security and privacy. Uh, SCOTUS, we'll check in with SCOTUS. Who's, uh, who's on deck at SCOTUS, Steve? Uh, everybody. Uh, speaking of happy birthdays, uh, a very happy 66th birthday today to Justice Sotomayor, although she celebrated it by dissenting um, in a, a pretty significant immigration case that we'll talk about briefly. Okay, and then we'll pivot to a different court, a different high court. CAF, there's CAF action. You have a there CAF is CAF action. CAF, CAF has has granted a discretionary review, the equivalent of granting cert, um, in a case that we briefly mentioned earlier called Bagani, um, which is a challenge to jurisdiction over retired service members. But Bobby, it's not a 
frontal assault on retiree jurisdiction. It's an equal protection objection. Interesting. And just for for those who for whom calf sounds like uh, a farm animal, I uh, know the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. That's what we're True. referring to here. At least I think. We're going to touch base with, uh, you know, practically a sustaining member, the Hassoun case. Which, uh, I think it's about to become quite a sustaining member. Um, that one, we've got a development there. And then um, a quick note on a bill introduced by some of the congressional members who were leadership on the Cyber Solarium Commission calling for creation of a national cyber director. What in the world is that all about? The NCD. We'll talk about whether there's... <laughs> what that is. Um, and then uh, some fun frivolity, which is the best kind of frivolity. Uh, baseball is ball. back. Play ball. Baseball is back, maybe, but, it's, but the thing that they're playing may not actually be baseball. I think you may be more concerned than I. This will be interesting to tease out. Uh, should we jump right in with some Trumplandia? Oh, by the way, if I sound distracted, so right next to my laptop monitor is, is one of my separate monitors. And you know how some... Um, Everyone tracks you with cookies. And so if you've shopped for something and you get on the wrong, like cheapo news site, it starts just flashing moving ads of whatever you've been looking for. So I'm getting this constant stream of guitar images because I was dream shopping online for a Telecaster. And now I just keep getting hit with these, uh, these things. Stop tracking me. Damn it. I, um, I got hit. So I did a, a screen share um, on, this, on this podcast, right? At one point um, when, we, when we were early on in the video side. And it was a statue and all the ads were for like Mets paraphernalia. <laughs> you may be tracked, but at least it's accurate. Um, Imagine how annoyed you'd be if it was Nationals paraphernalia. That could be a lot worse. Um, I, I once, for my, um, for my wedding, um, I bought all of my groomsmen um, specialty sweatshirts. because It was like uh, November in DC. Um, and so it was a sweatshirt that was like something they cared about a lot. So- oh. Um, for my brother-in-law, I got him like the Russian national soccer team sweatshirt. Um, for my friend Peter, um, I got an Amher sweatshirt. Well, the problem is, you know, two of my groomsmen went to Williams. Um, you know, the, the, the little cow college that shall not be named. Um, and so I broke down and bought two Williams sweatshirts for them, especially because we're going to watch the Amherst Williams game the day of the wedding. But that meant that I then got onto the mailing list for the Williams shop. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And, you know, I'm on some, like, there are, like, some right-wing media outlets that I'm on the mailing list for where it's, like, you know, I get Larry Clayman's emails. And I'm not sure as between Larry <laughs> Clayman's emails and the Williams shop, which one sent, you know, more sort of emotional reactions in me. What your online profile must look like. <laughs> well, this is like Netflix, right? I mean, Netflix, it's like, you're watching Broadchurch and Barbie Dreamhouse Adventures. Let me, can, can I just say how much I love <laughs> Barbie Dreamhouse? I think that is like the best cartoon ever made. It's brilliant. You're looking at me like you don't agree. I don't see how you can disagree with that. I, I prefer I prefer um, I prefer television shows that are not necessarily sending messages to my daughters about the importance of looking like Barbie. Okay, but Barbie <laughs> Dreamhouse is. For the category of show it is, a really well-written show that's a lot less painful for parents to watch than in terms of the dialogue and jokes and so forth. Raquel is genius, and that's where I'll hang my hat. I'm more of a Vampirina person myself. Uh, v is very good, too. We've been watching lots of Vampirina lately. Right. Here. I may be blue with pointy teeth, but I'm not so different underneath. Like That's, that's the message I'm going for, Bobby. There you go. All right. Um, Spe um, speaking of blue with pointy teeth... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not sure which of our characters best yeah, fits into this, but let's go to Trumplandia and let's talk first about the uh, DC Circuit ruling in the Flynn case. Uh, granting, contrary to all of our descriptions of how impossible it would be to grant this, they nonetheless did it. They granted in relevant part the uh, writ of mandamus and, and directed dismissal or granting of the Rule 48 motion and, and thus dismissal of the charges. Um, we have division here in, in the, the circuit. It, this panel, it's probably not the last word or it might not be the last word, but let's start by describing Judge Rao's uh, majority opinion. Uh, what yeah. are the key moving parts? So, I mean, the majority opinion spends a lot of time um, telling the story of the Flynn prosecution through the perspective of the DOJ's newfound motion to dismiss, right? So basically taking a very, I think, Bobby, not exactly consensus view of Flynn's culpability of how the FBI behaved, of all of Flynn's behavior, et cetera. Right. There's a, there's a key line. The government explains in light of newly discovered evidence of misconduct by the FBI, et cetera. So there's a certain framing, but what's, what the league to me, the central legal issue was this idea that insofar as the leave of court requirement has any teeth at all, as I understand judge Rao, she's saying that that means one thing and really one thing only protecting the defendant in the event that in some weird way the dismissal might actually make the defendant worse off and it's against the defendant's interest which it certainly does include that but she's simply foreclosing as a matter of rule interpretation the possibility that there is equally Prosecutorial bad faith yeah, that, that there's a role equally of, of uh, judicial responsibility in policing against something that's all too beneficial to the defendant and bespeaks something uh, in, inconsistent with the mission of the Justice Department. She's just foreclosing that, right? And that's and, the hardest. And I have to say, I mean, combined with Judge Rao's dissent in the Mazars case, which would basically kneecap Congress's ability to conduct aggressive oversight of the executive branch, I don't exactly know what she thinks the accountability mechanisms are for turning the Justice Department into basically, you know, an arm of your political party. Like, well, I think she clearly she would just say, well, elections, if the people don't like what's happening here. Right. There's 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 certainly uh, fewer and fewer uh, judicial pathways to anything checking the executive branch and for the know, moment. Two slices, but they're pretty powerful slices. So, so I just want to say, I, I think what, what really aggravates me about the DC Circus decision is that the merit should not have mattered, right? That like, you know, for all of the time that the majority opinion spends talking about, you know, why the government had a good case, why Sullivan, you know, did why, why Sullivan should have granted the, the, the government leave. Bobby, I actually think that it's probably true, all things being equal that the government is entitled to have Sullivan grant the motion to dismiss. But there's so much else going on here. And it's not like Sullivan denied the motion and this was the government seeking a remedy. Right. He, he hasn't ruled. He ruled yet. And so the notion that mandamus, and I want to come back to the mandamus part, the notion that it was error at all for Sullivan to, heaven forbid, take briefing, right, on the question of whether the unique narrow circumstances in which leave of court should not be granted might have been present in this case 
the notion that he was abusing his discretion in a manner that was appropriate, you know, that provided Flynn with, I mean, the other thing is all of Judge Rao's best arguments for why Sullivan was doing something offensive were about injuries not to Flynn, but to right. the government. Right? Let me, let me press you on one thing. Seek mandamus. Let me press you on this. It, it, it's not a, it's just a, a small nuance, perhaps maybe an important one. Doesn't the idea that um, there's this idea you were just advancing about, like, look, there's this idea that it, that there was harm because there were going to be questions is bogus. That argument is a good one if she's wrong about the scope of rule 48. But if we just hypothesize that she's right about the scope, that it is not to serve the function that, Sullivan wanted to, then it's not an implausible chain of events to get to where she got. Um, if she were, if her job was to review Sullivan's actions de novo, right, then it's not implausible. Where it becomes implausible, and to my mind, indefensible, is in, against the backdrop of the D.C. Circuit's very specific, very onerous mandamus jurisprudence, which says it is not enough to show error. The, the petitioner, right, not the government, the petitioner, Flynn, has to show that he has, quote, a clear and indisputable right to relief and a right that cannot be vindicated through any alternative mechanism. So two novelties there. One, she's extending the harm analysis, at least by implication, to, for the first time to a party other than the defendant, to the government, um, which, which did not has, seek mandamus. has interest. But you're pointing out that under existing law, those interests weren't part of the analysis, at least before. They and weren't, and also, but also, Bobby, if they were, why didn't DOJ petition for mandamus too? Right, like, like right, if, if this is, like, it is not, a, a criminal defendant is not supposed to vindicate the Justice Department's interests, right? Anyway, but... What, what's the best answer to, if, if you sort of step back from the legal weeds and look at it from a bigger picture perspective, That's um, and the best thing to be said from the majority opinion here is, look, in the final analysis, if DOJ wants to drop charges on somebody, whether, whether there's good motivations behind that, uh, political favors behind that or not, there's other accountability mechanisms if there's something sort of political favoritism going on. But in terms of just dropping charges, we, we want to have, as, as a society, a principle that we never get in the way of dropping charges, if that's what's going on. What, what's the best answer to that? Is it just that, fine, but this was still a premature, improper mechanism to use? I have two answers. This, you just hit the second one, which is let Sullivan rule, right? Because none of this would have been necessary if Sullivan had just granted the motion, right? But also, Bobby, all of these accountability mechanisms you're, you're invoking assume some ability to find out if DOJ was above board, right? I, for one, think it is not a preposterous idea that a court have a right to know, you know, to be confident that DOJ was doing what it did for non-corrupt reasons, right? Even if Sullivan was forced to dismiss anyway, if you could write an opinion that says, I'm dismissing because I have to, but I have grave concerns about DOJ's conduct here because I don't think it was actually applying its principles faithfully. I think it was doing a political favor for the president. Like, you know, part of the court's job is to actually ensure that the government is acting, Bobby, not in the best interest of the defendant, but in the best interest of the criminal justice system. And in a case like this, I think it's you know, not implausible to worry that, what the, that the government's behavior sets a very bad precedent going forward 
for the perception that is play in favorites in criminal cases. I mean, Judge, you know, Judge Amy Berman Jackson issued this remarkable order the day after the DC Circuit ruling in the Roger Stone case, where she ordered the government to say, um, you know, you're proposing to not set in stone until September, ironically, exactly 60 days before the election. Um, please show me other cases, right, where you have asked for similar delays and identify why you did, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> we're not, this is, you know, the, courts are entitled, Bobby, in my opinion, to figure out what the motive of the government's action was, even if the motive is not a sufficient ground to rule against the government. But, yeah, please, go sorry. ahead. But, but all that pales in comparison to bastardizing mandamus, right? Because- <laughs> That's what really gets your goat. But I mean, I've spent 10 years, right, in the military commissions running into the wall that is the DC Circuit's mandamus jurisprudence, where time after time, the Court of Appeals, almost all, you know, in opinions that are usually by Henderson, who's the other judge in the majority here, but one of which was by Brett Kavanaugh in the Cotter case, right, express all of these serious concerns about what's happening in the military commissions, but then say, but there's nothing we can do because mandamus. Right, right, right. No, there's, there's no question that mandamus turns out to be more flexible than it has appeared to be for a long time here. As you Which know, is a terrible precedent for DOJ. I mean, like, you know, every criminal defendant in the universe is now going to bring all kinds of mandamus petitions when DOJ sets one foot wrong, Bobby, in even the most mundane criminal well, here's Here's a wild prediction. It, it will turn out that this, principle, this uh, precedent, if, if it is a precedent that's still in the books at the time, uh, will not actually be embraced by the circuit in other cases. Um, but this gets to the bigger question. Which only further uh, undermines it. Right, so en banc. Uh, is, so I guess that one second. Are votes there and what's going to happen? So I want to talk about what happens next in a second. I just want to say one more thing about mandamus, which is like, I realize that Folks, especially on the Twitterverse, right, might think that it's like being overly technical to, to, to sort of mix it with a lot of mandamus. There is a reason why Congress is very um, Bobby uh, sparse, um, Spartan, right, in its, in its provision for interlocutory appeals, especially in criminal cases, right? That like, you know, there are deep structural systemic principles behind what's called the final judgment rule and the notion that in general, appellate courts don't interfere with trial courts in the middle of proceedings, right? Um, there is a pattern that dates back, I don't know, seven or eight years now, where you know, there's a trend of especially but not only conservative judges using mandamus or using implausible constructions of something called the collateral order doctrine to take cases away from district courts at a point in the proceeding where Congress hasn't authorized them to do so. And I just think, you know, it is really easy for folks who want this result to not care about the violence we're doing to the procedural rules. And I think it is really important to pause for a second and say, wait a second, would this have been so radically different if Sullivan had just ruled on the motion first, especially since chances are good he would have granted it? Right, so so I just I, I don't want to lose the thread. Like people are not dying on the mandamus hill just because they want Flynn to suffer. He's gonna. He, this it is clear what's going to happen here. He is not. You know, he's getting out of this one. Right. Like the In the end, he was going to walk. That's right. The question is just like how much are you going to twist your jurisprudence into a pretzel to achieve what are clearly partisan political aims? And that's that's what I find so disheartening. You know, I. I mean, I'm really surprised by Henderson because even though I think she is not necessarily the most 
um, neutrally sort of center, centrist jurist. She's the principal author of all of the DC Circuit's major mandamus cases going the other way. And I'm surprised she didn't at least feel some obligation to explain why she could reconcile those with these. I guess, I mean, look, I think that probably for that tension to really be unresolvable in their own minds, they would have to believe in their own minds that they're not actually playing it straight on their analysis of Rule 48. Right. Uh, I think I'm willing to credit that in their minds, that's what they think the right rule is, even though I think it's not well-founded. Um, it's easier for me to accept that they came to this result because they really believe that the power of DOJ to drop the charges is sufficiently clear and Rule 48 is sufficiently narrow in the way that they've adopted that it enables them to take this position without truly being inconsistent with what they've said in other settings where they feel like the underlying merits were different. Um, so I, get it. I mean, look, the, the partisan uh, context is unmistakable, shall we say. But I mean, they've now opened themselves up to, I mean, so, so if this does go on bonk, and I want to talk about how that could happen. If this does go on bonk, you know, it is not hard to imagine an opinion from, you know, Chief Judge Srinivasan and Judge Garland and Judge Tatel, right? And, you know, the other, um, other active judges on the court that says, you know, we actually think Flynn might have gotten a raw deal, right? Like, you know, but the panel, for the panel, that was conclusive. And for us, it's not. Like, I mean, that's the, you know, the, a world in which frustration over the merits justifies extraordinary relief that wouldn't otherwise be appropriate, right, is a world in which we are basically turning the trial and appellate system upside down. Yeah, to do all of that because we feel bad about what happened to one person, um, it just it smacks of selective justice to me. So I think that if it if it does your verse, it's gonna be on a, it's not gonna be like that kind of framing. I mean, I'm sure somebody will mention it, but I don't think that's what they're gonna hang their hat on. I think instead they'll say, look, Rule 48A is broader than has been suggested here. No one's ever claimed it's that narrow before. Yeah. It's not that narrow. And once you remove that foundational linchpin, the rest of the found, the rest of the building collapses and then it gets reversed. Um, right, so, so what happens next? So um, under DC Circuit Local Rule 41A3, um, the judgment becomes effective in 21 days, that's so July 15th, meaning Sullivan would presumably have to start moving back in the district court. And indeed, he scheduled a hearing for the 16th. Um, Sullivan actually has 45 days under the federal rules of appellate procedure because he was a party in the DC Circuit to seek rehearing on Bonk. Um, I don't think he's going to have to, and I don't think we're going to get to 21 days because, as it's pretty well settled, um, any active judge on the D.C. Circuit can sue a sponte or on their own. Yeah, somebody's going to do it. Um, this happens all the time. I mean, there's a there's a Guantanamo Bobby Kasim, right? The Guantanamo case from last September. Yeah. Um, Henderson and Rao, ironically enough, dissented from the court's refusal to sue a sponte rehear that panel decision on block. So, I think it's a matter of time before one of the other active judges requests we hear him. Um, there are 11 active judges, including the three on the panel. We haven't talked about Judge Wilkins's dissent, but you know, yeah, I think yeah. we know where he is. Um, you know, I, I don't like to frame it in these terms, but it's probably worth noting that of the 11 active judges, seven were appointed by Democratic presidents, four by Republican presidents, right? I mean, I think, and it would take six. It's a good shot at reversal here because there's yes. a stronger traditional argument for a broader interpretation of 48A that doesn't even require any of the, you know, 
partisan accusation against their colleagues that I think for many they won't want to make. No, um, but I'm not saying they're going to make a, but Bobby, I, I'm saying like, I don't think they need to reach the rule 48 issue. I can, I think they can say we, we, the court disagree, right, about whether rule 48 does or does not allow the kind of inquiry Judge Sullivan was contemplating. But that fact alone is enough to make mandamus inappropriate, right? No, right. That's, that's what I'm suggesting. Yeah. You, you just made my argument better than I was making it and clear. That's what I so, think the right outcome actually was. And that's and what's going to happen. probably will be. Um, and then, of course, then there will be a cert petition. Now, the interesting thing is, if we play out the timing, I'm trying to figure out in my mind, like, when is there finality? Um, and it seems After to me like it could go into, you know, the fall, right? Oh, no, I, I think it's next year. I mean, it's no, so no, but here's, let me get to where I'm getting. Um, since oh, it will not be clear whether this is what Flynn has won a victory here, but it's not the final word. And it nope. will not be clear until post-election how this whole thing is going to go. And so the, this sort of background idea that in the end he'd get a pardon if it became necessary, uh, it could be that that'll have to be decided depending on how the election goes before it's clear what, what would actually happen with this attempt to make the case go away. So in the end, here's my bold prediction. It'll all be uncertain. It'll be hanging out in the Supreme Court. Trump will have lost, and he'll end up including Flynn in what it promises to be this mother load of out-the-door Horrible pardons. pardons. Yes. Uh, there'll, be a, there'll be a spectrum of them, I'm sure. Speaking um, of, do you, see, uh, do you see the Fox News poll today about Texas? Uh, no, no, I did not. Um, was it about how great we are? <laughs> what was it about? Um, so Fox News, that, you know, crazy liberal, you know, Soros-funded uh, uh, media ent entity. I knew it. Has Biden up 45-44 in Texas. Well, that didn't surprise me. I mean, none of it, 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 as things currently stand, which actually means very little as to what will be going on in November, Fair. Uh, it would be so stunning if, if Trump's lead hadn't evaporated across the board. Um, but... We shall see. It's, it's, early, it's early and, you know, the virus is still going to get much worse. Um, speaking of the Justice Department and putting partisan politics ahead of uh, institutional independence. Um, so Friday night was interesting. Yeah, that was pretty well. And you were you were very much in the thick of it. I was not online at all that night. I just kind of woke up next day. I'm looking around. I made Twitter a huge mistake. Trying to force me to look at this and that. And everything's like, you know, Berman, Berman, Berman. I made um, a huge mistake. Like, uh, so, so we knew, so Barr- Engaging on Twitter? Yes. What's that? <laughs> you said you made a huge mistake. Engaging on Twitter. Not just, not engaging, Bobby, reading Twitter. Like, so, so here's right. the timeline. Having so Twitter. Barr issues this statement around dinner time on Friday, maybe a little bit later, that um, he's nominating Jay Clayton, who's the, what, the commissioner of the SEC, SEC. Yeah. right, to become the next U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Um, the Southern District, just if you're curious, is- Manhattan, the Bronx, Westchester, and Bobby, I think a couple more of the of the north of Westchester counties. You got you got. I don't know where White Plains is in the mix, but I know Westchester. But right, but the the city folk what the city folk call upstate. Um, <laughs> so the um, so Barr announces that he's nominating Clayton. Barr also announces that while that nomination is pending, he is naming Craig Carpenito, who is the U.S. Attorney for the District of New Jersey to become the U.S. attorney um, under the attorney general's U.S. attorney appointment power, more on that in a second, um, and that Jeff Berman, president, you know, who, bar, who Sessions had initially appointed U.S. attorney for the Southern District after President Trump fired Preet Bharara, right? right. 
um, and that Jefferman was, quote, stepping down, unquote. Right. Didn't he say resigning? Uh, no, it, he it said stepping down. It made it sound like he, this was all an agreed deal. And then a, a short while later. So, so I'm about to go to bed. I'm like, I'm going to take one more look at Twitter. And about, oh, I don't so. know, 10 o'clock Texas time, 11 o'clock Eastern, Berman's statement hits the internet. And Berman is not having it. No, he, 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 he rolled a grenade in the room. Um, and so Berman says, um, I have not resigned, right? Berman says, you cannot fire me, right? Berman says, I'm going to continue working on investigation. There's like really onerous language about like, you know, I am not going to be, you know. But he, he all but said, you're trying, to, you're trying to interfere with ongoing investigations. He all but said that. And he said, and I will remain in this office until my successor is confirmed by the Senate. Right. So the all hell bro- so let's all talk hell about his peculiar his status and what was the lawfully available path to remove him, okay. which indeed ultimately was used. So so let's start. So so U.S. attorneys are weird, right? I mean, just right off the bat, we're gonna we're gonna say a bit about the 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 whole battle vacancies regime. But but from the beginning, we should say U.S. attorneys are weird. Why are U.S. attorneys weird? Because U.S. attorneys. Bobby are older than the Justice Department, right? Like U.S. attorneys actually date all the way back to the founding. The um, Justice Department's comparatively quite young, really. 150 on Monday, um, right? Um, birthdays, lots of birthdays this week. Um, so U.S. attorneys, Bobby, for the longest time were thought of at least partially as officers of their courts, right? And not just as officers of the executive branch, you know, back in the time when we weren't all sort of unitary executive um, students. Um, so as early as, as sorry, as early as 1863, Congress provides that when there are vacancies in the office of U.S. Attorney, those vacancies can be filled at least on an interim basis by the judges of the district court. Um, the idea being that, like, we actually, you know, we don't want to give the president carte blanche to have sort of anyone who wants in that position. He can, can he can nominate someone that can be confirmed by the Senate, but other than that, it's going to be a judicial appointment. This depends on them being inferior officers. It does, and every court to reach the issue has held that U.S. attorneys are in fact inferior officers. Indeed, Bobby, OLC itself, right, no friend of congressional intrusions into executive power has long concluded that the judicial appointment procedure for U.S. attorneys is constitutionally permissible. Because they can be removed by the president, ultimately are subject to executive control. That's all it's you. So so there are two different questions that the Berman, so Berman, we should say, is one of these judicially appointed U.S. attorneys, because here's how the statute works. So the president fires Preet Bharara in, I think, March of 2017. Under 28 U.S.C. 546, the attorney general, this was not always true, this has only been true since 1986, the attorney general now has the power to appoint a, it's not called an interim U.S. attorney, Bobby, it's a full U.S. attorney, right. a non-Senate confirmed U.S. attorney, right. who can serve for the lesser of 120 days or until a Senate confirmed U.S. attorney is, is confirmed. Right. So um, Sessions does that for Berman. Sessions does that, names Berman. And then right before Berman's 120 days expires, the Southern District votes to reappoint Berman, basically the sort of for continuity. Right. And so by the time we get to Friday night, Berman has been serving as the court-appointed U.S. attorney for quite some time. Um, can, I, can I pause there to say... It seems to me that it'd be, if, if handled in a, in a context that looked different than this, 
there'd be nothing especially interesting about an announcement one day that, by the way, the president has finally gotten around to deciding who he wants to be his appointee to be in this position. And therefore, thank you for your service, uh, Berman, but here comes Steve Vladek. So here, I have two problems with that, right? I still think that doesn't work because this was the, the narrative Barr trotted out on Sunday. And one of the things that has really, I think, covered Barr in um, muck from this weekend is his story has changed multiple times. Sure, right. No, but I'm hypothesizing, like, imagine this was all rolled out in a no, no, much- I, I want to get there. Wait, so, so then, right, what the president says Friday night is he says, I really want um, Jay Clayton as the next U.S. attorney it's time for a Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney in New York. It's been too long, right? Jeff Berman, thank you for your service. But Berman Bobby then stays as the U.S. attorney until Clayton's confirmed. So confirmed. By statute. By statute. Yeah. And indeed, and just one more technical point, because I think this is important context. Um, folks may be wondering, well, wait a second. Republicans control the Senate. Why don't they just confirm Clayton? Well, U.S. attorneys still have blue slips, right? So <laughs> Hello, Chuck Schumer. So the Republicans have gotten rid of, blue slips are this old senatorial courtesy where nominees from a senator's state, yeah. right, had to meet with the approval of both of the home state senators. They had to- Even, if, even if of the opposite party, yeah. It's um, a little so Republicans, Republicans got rid of that, what, five, six years ago for judges, but Bobby, not for U.S. attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the first things Lindsey Graham says on Saturday is, I am going to honor the blue slip policy. Which means, right? Because they want reciprocity. Clayton's going nowhere, right? right? I mean, Schumer and Gillibrand are not about to both return their blue slips to put right. it in. Right. right. So, but here's the problem. The way, what you're positing, right? A government acting above board that just wants new blood. Fine. There's no reason to sack Berman uh, until Clayton's confirmed, right? When Berman is sacked automatically by statute. Can I prevail on you to go a little further down the hypothetical, this isn't what happened, but what yeah. if it had gone this way? Because I think it's a yeah. useful contrast. Let's assume all that's true. But the problem is, it, it's just very clear that, that Berman, let's hypothesize, or make him Smith. It's somebody totally different. And yeah. Smith is just a, a real thorn in the side of the administration, clearly politically hostile. And they, they simply don't want that person to be in the job. And there's someone else who's willing to do it. And they just want to make the switch yeah. in the interim, even though, the, are they unable to remove him? So this is, I think, the one piece that's not clear, right? Well, there are two pieces not clear, but this is, I think there is a non-frivolous argument, Bobby, that only the people who appointed Berman can remove him, right? That the Southern District has to remove him. Um, certainly the answer is not no one can remove him. He's not like the U.S. attorney. You know, right, right. Or, um, although it is. Are we getting into sort of Morrison v. Olson territory, though? If so only it's not just can remove and the president, the chief law enforcement officer of the country cannot remove. It doesn't. I mean, but Bob, remember the independent counsel statute, right? The attorney general had to go to the special division of the D.C. Circuit, right, to get the independent counsel removed. So Morrison's OK with that. The you know, there's a there's a super old Supreme Court case called Ex parte Henin, which stands for the proposition that unless Congress provides otherwise, the removing officer is the appointing officer. Right. Right? No, I, I get it. And I get it that Morrison would favor this. But of course, as, as you know, better than anybody, there's a huge amount of, of tension surrounding that. And I wonder if this isn't another example, maybe one that was sort of seemingly under the surface, less visible than. So, so than I think, right. so I think, I think the argument that it would be unconstitutional to not allow the president to remove a, a court appointed U.S. attorney is certainly wholly in line right, with the contemporary conservative, um, either hostility to Morrison or worldview that Scalia's dissent is already the law, 
which I think is lacking for support in reality. But, right. um, but there's a connect, there's a unitary executive challenge waiting to happen. I concede okay. that. I concede that. So Here's how, so is that what we're dealing with here? Or let, uh, let's talk about how this situation clearly is different because of the changing story. Right. Well, no, so forget the changing story. Cause again, right. I mean, this is not a context where motive usually matters. I, I mean, they all look like this is, they're full of shit, but that's a separate issue. Um, what, I can't speak for anybody else. What really got my goat and what I think set off the Southern District folks wasn't, well, it was two things. There's one, lying about Berman, but two, it was installing Carpenito. And it is not, the power to remove is not the power to appoint, right? And so even if we assume for the sake of argument, and I'm not sure I would concede this, you know, in, a, in an academic debate, even if we concede for the sake of argument, the president has the statutory authority to remove Berman, right? Conceded. Not clear at all that either Barr or he had the authority to install Carpenito. And if your concern, you know, forget Trump and Barr for a second, if your concern is that this was all a move to allow the White House to reach into the Southern District and interfere with ongoing investigations, then who replaces Berman is almost as important as whether you can fire Berman. And so I think, you know, it wasn't just the sacking of Berman in favor of Jay Clayton who needs a job. It was, I mean, Barr says at one point over the weekend, like, you know, he just wanted to be in New York. Yeah, that's a reason to name him the U.S. attorney. Um, it was also overriding the natural line of succession within the office and bringing in this guy from across the river, right? I think that's- Talk about, talk about what, what's the legal barrier to the executive branch deciding who's going to be that new person? What, what so this is, where there's that a, this is where there's a bit of a debate. And for folks who really are having trouble sleeping, there's a long Twitter thread that Marty- Lederman and Joseph O'Connell and I are all on. But it boils down to this. Bobby, one of two things is true. Either the president can avail himself of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, which would allow him to name as the acting U.S. attorney either the first assistant, anyone else confirmed by the Senate to anything, right. or any other senior, or like, you know, any senior DOJ employee who's been there for 90 days. So that would include the New Jersey. That would include Carpenito, right? Carpenito is not Senate confirmed. He's actually another court-appointed U.S. attorney, but he's been mm. there for 90 days. Yeah, right, right, of course. Here's the problem, right? If the Federal Vacancies Reform Act applies, Bobby, then there's no, then the judicial appointment procedure is moot, right? Like that is to say, why wouldn't, you know, there, the whole point of the judicial appointment procedure, the reason why Congress put that in the statute was to prevent the president and the attorney general from installing a series of non-Senate confirmed U.S. attorneys, right? Um, it would render the judicial appointment procedure. So the way the, the way the, remember the, the 546, the AG statute says the AG can appoint for 120 days, but no more, right? On day 121, you got to go for a court appointed U.S. attorney. If all this time that was known right. to mind because the president could just ignore 546 in favor of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act, then that would be a really, you know, so that provision, that provision is Lex Specialis overriding the generalities of the federal. That's my view. Interesting. So it's my view. Now, to be clear, the law on this is unsettled, right? OLC in 2003 took the position that the federal vacancy format applies. But Bobby, that was before a 2007 amendment where Congress put 546D back in. So right. Right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think that's right. So then clearly at some point, I mean, there's this like kind of recurring sort of incompetence element to what goes on. And this seems like a pretty stark example where it's pretty obvious that they handled it in a way that was bound to uh, be embarrassing at best to Berman and calculated, 
calculated to cause him to do what he could to resist. And it was obvious that there were legal problems with how they were trying to proceed. And lo and behold, at some point in the, uh, the walk back process, they looked for an off ramp and they found like, oh, okay, well, we can, we can follow the process where it just, he succeeded by his deputy. So I, I, I suspect, I have no basis for this, but I suspect the deal was made because Friday night and Saturday morning, Berman says, I'm staying and I'm fighting this thing. Yeah. And he says, all right, I'm out. But, but only after, right? So the sequence here matters, right? So Saturday morning, everyone wakes up pissed off, right? Saturday early afternoon, like 10 minutes before this piece Marty and I had written for the Washington Post was going to go online. <laughs> Barr sends a letter to Berman that is obnoxious in its tone, but that says, um, you know, I am, first of all, he's, so first, right, Friday night, Barr purported to remove Berman. Everyone agrees Barr could not, right? It's the president who has to remove Berman. Right. So there's already just some poor shoddy uh, craftsmanship going on there in the first step. So the letter says, the letter says, I have asked President Trump to fire you and he has agreed to do so. Right. I've, I've corrected my error and now. But here's the best part. So then reporters go to Trump and say, Barr says he asked you to fire this guy and you agreed to do so. And Trump says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, that's, uh, there, there are certain qualities of, of just directness and non-subterfuge with that fellow. And that's such a classic example. Or it's right there with, I wasn't kidding about pulling back on the testing, which indeed right. is. But, that's but, 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 the, but the most important thing the letter said, Bobby, is it said that, he, that Barr had um, decided to name, or Trump had decided to name Audrey Strauss. Um, who was Berman's, I think, handpicked deputy, right, right, as the acting U.S. attorney. Now, there is a long debate about whether that naming, so Barr says by operation of law, she's, the, she's now the deputy, she's now the, uh, the acting U.S. attorney, and then he cites the wrong statute. Um, it's hard to get good help these days. So I think there's a debate about whether she became the acting under the Vacancies Reform Act or under the relevant DOJ regulation, which is 28 CFR 0.137C. Um, my, my suspicion is it's the latter because that's the one that operates by law, right? Um, but I think that's what Berman wanted. Like I think Berman, because Berman, it's like two hours after that letter comes out that Berman says, never mind, I'm stepping down. Right, no, I think you're right. There's clearly a broker deal. There was an off-ramp needed for everybody. And this was a deal that, presumably didn't really get the White House or DOJ what it wanted really, nope. which was uh, a friendlier face in charge or friendlier person in charge of everything. If anything, um, it got everyone's, if, if anything, it backfires. It got everyone's, it even got Lindsey Graham's dander up, yeah, right? Yeah. Which I didn't even know that was possible anymore. Just immensely ham-handed uh, to say the least. But it's worse. I mean, so Carpinito, so then Monday, I, I, I forget who had the scoop, but someone writes a story about Carpinito and how Carpinito had an all hands conference call with his, because he's still the US attorney in, in you know, New Jersey. Um, and it's all hands where he says he was totally blindsided, where Barr told, where, when Barr told him that, Barr, that he was gonna become the, the US attorney in Manhattan, he was under the impression that Berman had resigned. And that, he, I mean, that if he'd known that he was being like, you know. Um, yeah, he didn't know he was being, or at least he, he certainly wanted to be seen that he didn't, he wasn't party to a stab in the back to his colleague. He's not, I mean, listen, he's not going to say that and then have Barr come out and say like, no, we, you know, that's not what happened. But so, so they're just, this whole episode, Bobby, strikes me as almost everything that's wrong with the Trump administration. It's ham-handed. It's incompetent. It's probably at least to some degree malevolent. It's based upon readings of statutes that just shouldn't be available to them. 
And it's quite possibly, although we have no idea, for deeply corrupt purposes, right? It's like the Trump administration in a 20-hour nutshell. On, so we need to move on, but I just want to ask this last question or put this out there for us both to think about. Um, immediately everyone says like, ah, what is, what is the investigation that is reaching some critical point perhaps in the months ahead? Uh, and it's, it's not clear to me from my very shallow compared to you exposure to the topic, but is there anything that's an obvious candidate to where, yeah, actually in the so-and-so case, here's this point that's coming? Because my sense is it's not actually clear. And so I'm more open to the possibility that this was more about just a general policy of trying to move people around when you don't think they're on their, that they're on your team, which is bad is it, enough. But Berman, I mean, Berman, like Berman's one of their guys. Like I don't So, so well, he's, well, he's Sessions guy and Sessions is persona non grata. So, I mean, I, I think it is possible, Bobby, I, I, I would, I freely concede that it's possible, if not likely, that this was not a case of, I am literally doing this to stop the investigation into myself. Right. Right. Um, because were it that, I think we would have heard about that by now. Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, I think there'd be plenty of people who'd be willing to say like, I'll tell you what was going on here. In two months, we're going to be heading this way. But I'm not sure that the subtlety of it makes it any, like maybe it's a little less, I'm, I'm not sure it makes it uncorrupt, right? It, just, it might just make it less corrupt, right? Because it's, I still worry that it's the same concern, that there's, there's a prosecutor who's not just taking his marching orders from the White House and therefore we have to get him out. Yeah, there's, so right, it, there's a spectrum of corruption. Yes. <laughs> that, that could be a show title, by, by the way. The, the spectrum of corruption. There's a, there's a spectrum of corruption. Let's try to remember that. Um, I will. I, I think it's fair. It, it's looking to me a lot like for the reason you said the dog that didn't bark, it was not out and out corrupt in that sort of like derailed the investigation since. But, why, but, then, why, but then why do it on a Friday night? Well, they do all kinds of stupid stuff at stupid times. And this at a minimum was something they understood was unsavory. Let me just run the thread out on this. Um, it, there's there's a, a much more, it's problematic perhaps, but much more defensible scenario in which this was an ugly and terrible, terribly handled way of doing something that's not actually in any way corrupt, but is just about continuing to try to put your people in all the important positions. And yeah. it was just terribly handled. And then there's the in-between possibility where it was what I just said, but also with a real motivation of thinking that that's going to feather the nest in ways that are not consistent with the rule of law. Right. And I'm that's perfectly right. willing to believe that some thought along those lines was possible. Although in that case, it, it raises the question, like, is there really a reason to think that the U.S. attorney in New Jersey is somebody who's really going to deliver the goods on that? I don't know anything about the person, but I'm not, I'm not willing to assume that that's true about the person. I was like, that this might have been more the, I just want our people everywhere. So I don't know, I don't know Carpenito, I don't know Berman. I do know plenty of folks in both offices. And I'll just say that the tenor of folks' horror changed fairly dramatically when it became clear that Berman was gonna be succeeded by Strauss and not Carpenito. Fair enough. So on to the bulletin ruling. As predicted, of course, everybody loses. Uh, the administration cannot get a prior restraint and Bolton probably ain't gonna get any money. Great. Well done, Judge Lambert. Yeah, that exactly. Uh, he, he, he had a, a fast break. He lays it up, dunks it. Uh, there you go. I mean, listen, Not people have say, missed, right? Bobby, people have missed dunks before. CEG, the DC circuit, and in Ray Flynn. <laughs> um, well, let's talk real quick about the Veterans Memorial Preservation Act, uh, 18 U.S. Code. 
1969. Vumpa. Vumpa is a fun statue. Now, it's, it's not that all memorials on federal property are protected by this felony offense. It's the ones memorializing uh, those who served or service. It's got to have that service memorialization. Um, in this case, the immediate provocation for this being on topic for us, of course, is the Jackson Battle of New Orleans Memorial in Lafayette Square Park. I think it's, it's not just Jackson. Trump's tweet. Trump's no, 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 tweet. Look, look, but the precipitating event that got this going was the attempt to take down the Jackson thing. I'm not saying it's the only thing. And that I, was I, a Trump, precipitating Bobby, event. Trump's tweet was about all the statues. Trump, Trump's tweet. Well, I, I don't know the order in which Trump treated, tweeted relatives when this became a thing. My understanding was that there was an attempt to take down the Jackson statue, statue uh, that is a Battle of New Orleans statue. And the point I was trying to make was that under VMPA, that's clearly covered, not yes. because it's just Jackson, but because it's the Battle of New Orleans and it's a memorialization that's specific to uh, a, a military setting. Uh, it does not follow that every uh, presidential statue in every, every, every place on federal property uh, that involves a president who was a service member or was in the military at some point is protected by the statute, does it? No, I mean, the statute literally, so here's 1369A, right? Whoever, blah, 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 willfully injures or destroys or blah, 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 um, any structure, plaque, statue, or other monument on public property commemorating the service of any person in the armed forces of the United States. Right, and so, so a statue of a president is not by any stretch automatically uh, within the bounds of the statute. Uh, not only that, I mean, you know, so George Washington, I think, is a close case, right? Because, you know, are Washington statues commemorating General Washington or President Washington? Right. And, and of course, the right answer is like, well, both, right? It's the, the whole life and arc of what he did for the country. Right. Um, but the thing is, there, there are people out there arguing like, well, Robert E. Lee served in the U.S. Army. Yeah. Robert E. Lee statues are not commemorating his... They're not. The that's, that's like the dumbest argument ever. They're, well... The idea that the statue of Robert E. Lee is to celebrate the earlier period of his service when he was a younger officer. When, when he, he was, was offered command of the Union Army. Not plausible. So I just, I, so, you know, I think as often, as is often the case, the president issued a poorly worded and ambiguous tweet about how he was going to prosecute people for destroying statues. Um, Folks were like, can he do that? Right? Thinking like he was proclaiming a new prohibition. That he right. Because he, he said, like, I'm going to issue an executive order on this. It's like, wait, he's like dictating criminal statutes? No, no. no this no. is a 2003 criminal statute. It's on the books. Any U.S. attorney can enforce it as long as the property is on, as long as the statute is on public property. Um, I, so let me just say, I, I mean, I am not, um, there's a great line in, um, what is it, the Da Vinci Code, right? Where um, Professor Langdon, you know, is first brought to the, the Vatican and he's talking about all of the statues that Pope, I think Pope Pi, I don't remember, I remember it's Pope, um, the, cat, the Great Castration, right? Where all the statues were. Um, and so the, 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 gendar, the, the Vatican security guy says, you know, are you anti-Catholic, Professor Langdon? And then he says, no, I'm anti-vandalism. Right, like <laughs> the you know, I, I too am anti-vandalism, but I and, I and I I do think that there's a better way for for folks to get statues down that commemorate the wrong things and the wrong people. But I think this sort of you know, the fervor that the president and his supporters have whipped up 
over this particular symptom of the much broader disease we are currently facing. I mean, I don't think it is wrong to say that the president seems to care more about statues of dead Confederates than he does about living COVID suffering Americans. And that's, you know. So on the VMPA, it's got this narrow ambit. It doesn't cover a lot of statuary that may be on federal grounds, but it's not the only provision. I haven't looked this up, but surely it is the case that there is a more general charge that could be brought against anyone who's on. Yeah, destruction of federal property. property. What's that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just, it just doesn't carry a stiff a sentence. And of course, ah, that's know, the key, right? But, but of course, also all of these local jurisdictions have, you know, their own destruction of property. Right, it's just destruction of property. Yeah. So, all right. So, I, you know, we can exit just, Trumplandia at long and painful last. Um, la- uh, two days ago, or actually, God, it's been a week. Uh, yesterday, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, our, our PCLOB friends, under Chair Adam Klein and uh, and a number of others convened a session that was primarily to discuss, uh, it was really framed as, where are we with FISA? What needs attention? There's a lot of legislation bouncing around. None of it actually really uh, driven by or focused on the three provisions we talk about endlessly on this show, like Section 215 and Roving Wiretaps and Lone Wolf uh, that have expired. But instead, the, the, the legislative ferment is all around um, boring old Title I FISA and, and what sort of rules uh, might be appropriate to, to tighten that process, especially in light of the Horowitz report on Carter Page. And so uh, uh, you're a friend of mine, as, as you always say, uh, Liza Gotin and I, we were on a panel as part of this presentation. And then before us, Mary McCord and Ken Weinstein spoke. And it was a, it, I think it's going to be on their website if it's not already up there. Uh, I think it was a very useful and really kind of uh, thoughtful and constructive dialogue. You know, not surprisingly, Liza and I didn't entirely agree on everything. Um, but for those who are sort of inter- interested in where are some of the current debates, I recommend going to the PCLOB site and maybe we'll tweet out the link at some point once I spot it. Um, meanwhile, at SCOTUS, Steve, uh, you've been calling for attention to the Thoracogen case for quite a while. You've been following it for a long time. It finally came to a head. Uh, I don't know what happened, except that then you mentioned that Sotomayor was in dissent. So I think you didn't get the result you were looking for. Can you can you lay down what the court held? Yes, yeah, so it's a reminder. I mean, this is you know this is not one of the I think huge cases people were expecting. You know, so we still got thirteen decisions left. Yeah, they're going to go into overtime, I believe. Extra innings, you might say. We're not putting a runner on second. We're going to put it put a justice on second. <laughs> um, I mean, it is, it is true that, I mean, so the court has announced, Bobby, that it's sitting Monday and Tuesday next week. They're not handing down 13 opinions. Well, notice, of course, this is like the first time forever. Like, they can't go anywhere fun. Like, their, their summer trips to Europe are not happening. So, 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 you know, if no one else is, if I'm not useful for anything else, here's some useless SCOTUS trivia. So the last time the Supreme Court issued a merits decision in an argued case was uh, in July, sorry, was 1996, Bobby. The last time the court went past July 4th, was 1986, back when the court was still hearing 150 cases a term. So, you know, I mean, there's an obvious reason why they're late, which is to say, you know, they heard 10 cases in May because of the coronavirus. On the flip side, they heard the fewest total cases this term since the Civil War. And so one might push back a little and say, well, wait a second, like, really? But anyway, so um, 
we only got one opinion today. It was this uh, case, this Sri Lankan asylum case. I, I can't pronounce it at all, but it looks like it should say thoracogeum, but that's not right. Um, and this is a case we've talked about before. This is a, this is a case about whether non-citizens who are subject to expedited removal, and we'll talk about that, what that means, um, are entitled to challenge denials of asylum in the expedited removal process through a habeas petition. Um, so the short answer is the court said no. Um, indeed, uh, seven justices actually ruled against Thurasidium himself. Um, but there's a split as to why. Um, and I think what's really remarkable about Justice Alito's majority opinion is that it decides a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't necessary to the result, which is what provokes Justices Breyer and Ginsburg, who are in the majority, to nevertheless um, not join in Alito's opinion. Hence, it's really a five to two to two decision. Okay. So here's what Alito says. So Alito says first, and this is actually, I think, a really consequential holding. He says, individuals who are challenging removal orders are not protected by the suspension, the suspension clause. Bobby, not in general, right? Like if you're gonna throw him in a brig, he gets habeas. But a challenge to a removal order is not part of the core of habeas. So right? this is sort of saying like immigration is different? So immigration, I, I'd be careful here, right? Because there is such a thing as immigration detention. And so immigration detention, right? Prop, the court doesn't say anything, but probably still within core executive detention under the suspension clause. The problem is, is that here, Thurasagium is not challenging his detention. He's challenging whether the government can remove him without adjudicating his asylum claim. And Alito says, holding number one, that the suspension clause just doesn't encompass Okay. to removal orders. So that, would this be, just so I understand, would this be analogous to saying like, look, sometimes with habeas, there are challenges to conditions of confinement and saying like, well, that, that's important in some context, but it's not the core and the core is what we're protecting here. Same yes. idea? Yes, okay. but here's why it's a huge deal. Um, expedited removal is a very small subset, although growing, of immigration cases, right? Alito's analysis was not, at least on the suspension clause point, limited to expedited removal. Alito's analysis would say, any challenge to, I mean, and, and the reason all I, removals. What's that? To all removals. And the reason why it's a huge deal, Bobby, is for the better part of 24 years since the 1996 immigration reform laws, the lower courts have been bending over backwards to preserve at least some modicum of judicial review for challenges to removal orders. Here's Alito saying you don't need to, right? Like even people who, even green card holders, right, who are losing their status and being deported now don't get habeas to challenge their removal. And that's- Does this leave in place direct review? Yes. Okay, so there's but, still that. But, so, so which is why, but, but Bobby, the problem is it also leaves that, it, it leaves the scope of review in these cases entirely to Congress's whim, right? And so, you know, I don't think Congress will do this tomorrow, I don't think it's gonna do it next year, but if Congress comes back and wants to further narrow the scope of direct review in immigration cases, in normal, I mean, there's no direct review in expedited removal cases, right? But in normal cases, um, the opinion today says, go for it. So wholly apart, from, so I wanted to test by removal, but like the first big chunk of this is just, you know, Alito goes way past expedited removal and just says, in general, the suspension clause does not protect challenges to removal yeah, orders. It sounds like a big deal. Period, it's a big deal. Okay, so expedited removal. Expedited removal is something that was created in 96. And the idea when it was created, Bobby, was, as the term says, to create a class of individuals for whom the process was expedited. Um, the statute 
defines the term as undocumented immigrants, or well, it's, I'm not quoting the statute, but basically non-citizens with no lawful status who have been in the United States for up to two years. Until 2017, multiple presidents had not, had not applied the statute that brought them. So until 2017, the rule for expedited removal was you could only be subject to expedited removal if you were arrested within 100 miles of a land border and within 14 days of having crossed it. So as a matter of executive policy discretion, they were not using the statutory authority for all it's worth. Trump, of course, uh, under Stephen Miller, uh, dives right into this. But I mean, to, to be clear though, I mean, it should not be hard to see the difference between not just who's covered, but Bobby, who there'd be a reasonable basis to arrest, right? When the rule is 14 days and 100 miles versus anywhere in the country and two years, right? Um, the reason why I say all this is because the Trump administration, so Thurasigium was under the old rule. He was arrested within 14 days and 100 miles. Okay. But the Trump administration's rule expanding it to the statutory maximum was just upheld by the DC circuit earlier this week, right? Um, and so, you know, the Supreme Court's decision today is almost certainly gonna to apply to the new rule, not just of the Of course, yeah, no, that, that seems clear. Yeah. Okay, so then there's the due process holding. Um, the suspension clause holding is deeply frustrating to me as a suspension clause scholar, but there's not a lot of suspension clause case law. There is, as you know, a ton of due process case law when it comes to different classes of non-citizens. And the Supreme Court today basically harkens back to the good old days of the 1950s by saying that individuals who are in expedited removal proceedings are similarly situated to those who are stopped at the border, um, right? And basically the fact that they are physically present on US soil, unlike the folks who had been stopped at the border in the 1950s cases, is no never mind for purposes of the due process clause it, at least with respect to their judicial proceedings. And would that go all the way to the two-year anywhere-in-the-country category then? Because that's pretty remarkable. I agree with you that that's really stunning. So Alito doesn't say that, but I'm sure that will be the argument for the lower court. I'm sure that we're going to hear that now in lower courts, right? And so, you know, wow. here we have a case where the court could have decided this rather narrow. You know, Breyer and Ginsburg wrote the opinion that explained how you could have ruled narrowly against the Rasegeum here right, without reaching these ginormous questions yeah. about habeas and due process. And Alito's like, eh. All right. That was a really enlightening explication. I, that, Can I, I say one last thing? Yes, please. One more thing? Sorry. So um, the focus is, I think, under, and, and it's also fascinating that Alito all of a sudden cares so much about the border, given that he wrote Hernandez, where, okay, anyway. Um, the, but the, the last thing I want to say is, um, the focus, I think, is understandably on Alito because he wrote the opinion. Um, Thomas wrote a concurrence, but it's not really that, I think, instructive or illustrative. I think the real key to this case is not Alito or Thomas. I think the real key to this case is Kavanaugh because, you know, I think this, er this is an area where Justice Kennedy had consistently voted with the lefties, right? Yep. Um, both it wasn't on just Boumediene where he had a broad approach to... But not just Boumediene, right? I mean, immigration... That's what I said. It's not just Boumediene where he had this... Right, I mean, Zadvitis, he's in the majority with Justice yeah. Breyer. So the switch to Kavanaugh was the fifth vote on this. You think there's one and, of those... And, you know, and, and I wrote, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 when Kavanaugh was nominated in July of, what, 2018, right, before the nomination became a very different conversation. Yeah, I remember you had a list of things where you thought, here are areas where you think he'll be different than... And did you call this one out? I did. Well, well, who's, who then, as long as you're prognosticating, who is going to win 
the World Series with scare quotes around it, because I think we should save our other topics and jump in our frivolity before our time runs out here. All right, so really, I mean, we'll save for next week the, the Grant Pagani, uh, Hassoon, and the Cyber Solarian, because there's, there's, those are all relevant things. Yep, we'll have plenty. All right, and so, God knows what else between now and then. So baseball, so the, the you know, subject to the fact that um, the virus is exploding in 23 states, including states where a lot of baseball is played, like ours, Right. So like, so assuming they even can do what they say they're going to do, or as opposed to just making all these plans that nothing will come of, right. um, you're not happy with the rules they're playing under. Well, so let's just talk about what they're doing first. So the players and the owners, after shooting themselves in the foot for weeks, finally mm-hmm. agreed to a deal for a 60-game season, right? 60 compared to the usual 162. Sure. So, not a lot of time left on the clock. Um, the schedule, Bobby, this is, this is where things really start getting weird. Have you, have you heard about the schedule, how they're going to do the schedule? No, I'm assuming it's not ALNL, but a blended thing like they talked about? It's, it's in between. So um, to minimize travel, right, um, it's going to be principally intra-divisional play. So each team is going to play 10 games against the other, what, four teams in their division. And then 10 games um, – or some number of games against uh, the teams in the opposite league division, right? Okay. So there's going to be no regular season games between teams in different divisions of the same league. Right. No, no uh, Mets, Dodgers, no, uh, yeah, Angels. Yeah. Um, and then there are the rules, right? So there are a bunch of the, – the, because it's a 60-game season, because they're throwing everything out the window, they're trying a whole bunch of new stuff. And the two big ones are um, designated hitter in the National League, mm-hmm. um, and this will be, I think, what the Wait, first. By the way, why is that? Why is that a pandemic relevant rule change for them to make? It's not. The, what's going on is that everyone believes, everyone knows there's going to be an asterisk next to this season, and so baseball's like, well, let's try all this stuff then. Let's have some fun. Okay, so I see. It's it's just like let's yeah, let's make it but, the exit. But Bobby, imagine if imagine if the NBA right comes back to the bubble and adds a four point shot. Right. Imagine if football. Right, comes back and adds like a you know a, a, a an offensive safety. I don't even know what that would be. Like <laughs> fundamentally changing the rules of the game just because you can. I just it's very unbaseball, but in, in for it, at a high level of theory, I'm like really glad to see them willing to do something unorthodox because they're so hidebound otherwise. But here's the problem. So, but the two rule changes that seem the most controversial to me have nothing to do with the pandemic, right? So, rule change number one, right? NLDH. I mean. Yeah. That's just like, that's just tinkering with stuff because you can. But also like, I mean, teams built their rosters based upon one understanding of how the season was going to be played. Now, all of a sudden, like a team that actually has like four outfielders is going to really, I mean, this actually might be really good for the Mets, right? Yeah, yeah I was going to say, there, there are some teams for whom this is not an equally impactful rule. Yeah. So some teams have really good hitting pitchers, also the Mets. Um, but the rule that really got my, my dander up um, is a rule that they're borrowing from some minor leagues minor league, yeah. softball, um, which is when a game is tied after nine innings, each team will start each successive extra inning with a runner on second and nobody out. The idea being to increase yeah. the likelihood that each inning of extra innings ends the game. So what's wrong with that? It's not baseball okay <laughs> i hear you you know they i heard a stat earlier i don't know how accurate this is but on the local sports radio this morning they said that in i think it was uh in the league the round rock express play in uh traditionally 49 percent of extra inning games are terminated after the first extra frame which actually surprised me it was that high um 
and that with this new rule over the past two years, it's gone up into the 70s. I, I don't remember if it was 73%. Or it, it, so it'll it have an effect. I, I'm not just doing its effectiveness. Isn't that pandemic related? Doesn't that knock off some unneeded exposure? No 19 inning games? Yeah, because after you've been in the clubhouse together all day and on the baseball field together all day, it's that last 45 minutes that's going to do it. You never know. Well, I'm just pointing out that it's not entirely unrelated. It's trying to get people but also, out of I mean, there. Bobby, Bobby, when you think about the baseball season last year, is your, is your big memory of the 2019 Major League season an epidemic of 17 inning games? No. Of course, it, what I'd like them to fix, what they should be focused on, is trying to introduce timing constraints to speed yes. the game speed up, the up first nine innings. too late before yes. they lose all the fans forever. Yes. Yeah. That's, if they were going to do something novel – Right. That, there was your chance. We're speeding up the 11th inning is small comfort, right? When the whole complaint is that the first nine innings take four hours. Completely agree with you on that. If there's one rule change they should have had, that, that's one I would like to have seen. Now, so I don't also, know. We still, we still have the three pitcher. We, we still have the uh, you have to face three batters rule, right? But also, I mean, think about how yeah, this yeah. Is extra inning strategy, right? So imagine you have a really good one inning relief pitcher who throws nasty breaking balls right? You're not going to start him in the 10th inning when there's a runner on second because the risk that he throws a wild pitch and the guy goes to yep. third. Yeah, I know. The, the, so the, the, heat, the closers with heat are really going to be in more demand. Of course, this is such a temporary window, hard to know. know. No one's going to make a roster change, but. But so here's the crazy thing. So, so this is, this is something that, I mean, my, the, the way I, I, like a law professor, I tried to come up with the extreme hypothetical to prove how preposterous <laughs> the rule is. Um, you could pitch a perfect game and lose. Would it be so like, yeah, because you could have just 30 up, 30 down, but sacrifices don't make or sacrifice our fly our productive outs. Yep, yeah, no, it could definitely be done. It could happen. I mean, it'll never happen because no, no one's gonna pit, no one's gonna be allowed to pitch that many, but uh, all right, so who's so who's gonna win? So, you know, the short season I think really complicates predictions, right? Because I mean, the Nationals last year through 50 games were 19 and 31, right? right. Um, anyone can get hot for 60 games. I, the only thing I feel confident about Bobby is that this format rewards chaos. And so as between like chaos is a ladder and the Dodgers, I'm taking the field, right? Because it's just, you know, yeah, there's more chance for variability. Yeah. Some random team is going to just get hot. Like someone's going to hit 380, right. For 60 games. And like, you know, knock out 25 home runs and put the team on his back. Well, you just brought me to the last thing I wanted to ask about, which is uh, should any stats from this bodlerized season have any, uh, any lasting count? I mean, is there some way to just take it all and say, look, we're doing this league this season. We're going to contractually speaking, it's going to count, but in the record books, it's just a big blank. So let me, let me, let me put this back to you with a couple of stats, right? So, it's the average stats that are going to be the problem, right? Because no yeah, one you have a greater chance to surge for you. You could avoid the law of averages and returning to the mean a no, little but, more but, effectively. But what I mean by that is like, no one's going to reach the cumulative stats, right? No one's going to hit 70 homers. Right. No so gonna, the, all the records will be low. Right. So the one that I've heard that most people freak out about is, you know, the record for winning percentage by a pitcher in a season, right? Is Elroy face who went, I think, either 18-1 and one and 19-1 or one, and 19 and one for the Pirates in, like, the early 60s, late 50s. Um, it would only take 
under in a 60 game season you so you have to have a, you have to have at least one decision for every 10 team game right so you can go you can six go and 10 and 0 here you go you go 6 and 0 oh oh heavens yeah that's yes. that's problematic um so i don't think you're going to have any number of middle relievers who might be 6 and 0 even with 60 games i don't think anyone's going to um hit 400 Right, like that. I think I think that would be a real debate. If someone's like, if someone's hitting like 401 with a week left, there's going to be a huge debate about whether that should count. Right? Yeah, that's it. I could I could see that happening. I'm curious, and somebody out there will know who was the last person to be over 460 for a 60 game period. It so the first 60 games. There must be actually a, probably a number of examples where somebody was red hot for a while. So George Brett had a year where he was in the low 400s for a long time. For sure. No, he almost got to the end, if I recall. Someone, Tony Gwynn in 94, I want to mm-hmm. say was, hitting, was up in the 390s when the strike hit. Is that possible? Uh, definitely possible. Um, so, you know, I think, Bobby, the short answer is the stats should all count. The question is whether they're going to, is whether the, the records are going to have asterisks. Yeah, well, they kind of have to, right? They really kind of have to. So Gwyn in 94 was hitting 394. Yeah. At the, at the, when the season shut down with about 50 games left. Yeah, I went online while we're talking and I'm looking at a few things here. Baseball Reference is the world's greatest website. Um, oh, pretty great. But so the last, I mean, Bobby, if we're, if we're having this conversation, we have to, we obviously have one last topic, which is, so how are the Mets going to do? I think they'll, I think they're more likely, let me put it this way. They're better off with a chance to prevail by being hot at the right time than they would have been if they'd had the full season to have it all really set in. So I mean, I the odds are definitely higher that the Mets go to the playoffs now, even without Syndergaard. Yeah, I think that's a good. Hey, I've got some stats for you. Are you ready? I know I'm the ready. answer. Uh, going back uh, any number of years, at the 60-game mark, who was, uh, who was leading the league in average? Um, there is someone on this list in recent memory who was over 400. He was 409 in 2008. Um, nope. Uh, you want me to give, uh, Ichiro was, was the next year at 356 at that point, FYI. No, uh, and this year, this Atlanta Brave was hitting 409 in 2008. Chipper. Chipper. I remember Chipper. Chipper was Chipper was Chipper was literally on like you couldn't get him out the first. God, time. he was so good in his prime. Do, uh, do you know? Do you know what Chipper Jones named his first kid? What? Shay. Shay. You know why? Sorry, what? Do you know why? Is it for Shea Stadium? Yes, because Chipper Chipper always always did well at Shea Stadium. That's very cool. So no one else, interestingly, on this list going back to two thousand two. No one else was in the ballpark. Chip was over the line. Um, last year, Cody Bellinger was at 376, and there's that is the Derek Lee in 2005 at 378. Ichiro in 2002 was 376. No one else has, has threatened it. So probably we won't see it this time. But hey, I don't know. It also depends on what kind of balls they're using, right? And uh, I mean that's true. I mean, because that, I mean ERA, right? I mean, what if Degrom ends up with like a one point zero four ERA over sixty games? So I think I think a lot of uh, the powers that be in baseball would be listening to this conversation and say, "Perfect, people right. are debating baseball." And know. you know what? That is the conversation uh, we could use as a. But then don't phase. mess with the tenth inning and let the pitchers hit. <laughs> um, I, I am confident now that there will be some 10th inning fiasco that befalls the Mets <laughs> because of this. 
um, I, I feel confident that when the season is over, right, the Mets will have the lowest percentage of runs scored, right? Like the, the, Mets will, the Mets will have the lowest average run scored in extra innings of any team in the majors because they'll just find a way to bungle it. You think uh, MLB will juice the ball a little bit more because of the need yes. to, yeah. But also, they won't, probably they won't have to. I mean, if the season starts, they're talking what, July, they're June 23rd, 24th, it's hot. I mean, what folks forget about baseball is that half of the cities in which baseball is played are cold weather cities where historically offense is down the first six weeks of the season. Yeah. They're going to come out in the middle of June. I mean, you know, the, the opening day, there's going to be like seven, like 14 to 12 games. So baseball hopes. Yeah, fair enough. Right. I mean, that, this all seems that we actually make it to June 20th. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh. All right. On that note. I mean, things are bad. Things are really bad. Um, we are uh, heading into the uh, the storm here. No question yes. about it, at least here in Texas. Um, if only thanks, thanks a lot, Bobby. Everybody. Huh? If only we had seen that coming. Yeah, it's a shame. No one, no one could have known. No, no one, one could have known, known that uh, that critic, being critical of wearing masks and disempowering local leaders from uh, imposing public health orders. Did, did, can I say one last thing before you? Did you see Trump's whole thing about? Um, they call it COVID nineteen. No one knows what the nineteen is. <laughs> Did you really? Say, I mean, I totally believe he said that, but that's priceless. literally uh, said that. Let me put in a plug here for another podcast, by the way. Yeah. Uh, um, let me get the exact name right. This is a show I listen to every week about Texas politics, and it occurs to me we've got all these listeners from elsewhere who don't have the blessings of being here, but are fascinated by us and our doings in good or bad ways. And if you are interested in really kind of getting a nice inside and really thoughtful take every week, listen to the Texas Take, um, which is uh, Scott Braddock and, um, oh gosh, who else is it? Uh, oh yeah, Scott Braddock, who does the Quorum Report and Houston Chronicle political writer, Jeremy Wallace. Uh, Texas Take is this week, it's on fire. Go get the most recent episode about uh, pushing pause on reopening and just prepare yourself for the for the part of the segment that goes into detail on empower Texas and or Texans and they're they're uh, mocking uh, getting caught in a hot mic moment on their podcast making fun of Greg Abbott's disability and uh, let's just say uh, saying some pretty ugly things about him. Anyways, there's your tip of the day. I think it is possible to believe that no one should ever, ever, ever for a second say anything about, you know, anything remotely jocular or anything about the fact that Greg Abbott is in a wheelchair, other than to have a tremendous respect for someone who has persevered through those difficulties, and to also think that he totally misplayed his reaction to the epidemic. It's, uh, I actually think I commend this episode to you as well, because one of the things, and I know you're not going to cut him slack, and I'm not saying you should, but it does a good job of, of painting the picture of the Texas political spectrum on the right and where Abbott is relative to the people that are in many respects. Oh, listen, it's, it's, quite, probably, it's, it's quite clear where Abbott, I mean, I'm, I am, you know, I'm the first, I mean, the, the, all this horrible stuff coming out from like the, these county Republican party officials, right? That, you right. know, the pro there are two different critiques of Abbott, one of which I'm middling on and one of which I'm aggressive on. Right. The Midland critique is that he should have been much more aggressive at the statewide level earlier. 
right? That's where I think the politics are really complicated and I understand why he did what he did. Where I will not forgive him is in affirmatively disempowering localities from being more aggressive, right? Because, I mean, Travis County had actually tried to have a much more aggressive series of early restrictions and Abbott overrode most of those. That's right. And so it seems like we ought to have, we, we ought to be able to have two separate conversations. Should he, the governor, have taken more affirmative action earlier, right? I think reasonable minds are gonna disagree about that, especially in the political context. Should he have not been as aggressive in stopping local governments from reacting to the conditions on the ground in their localities? That's where I think the, the most criticism can be fairly leveled. Right. I, I don't disagree because I, I, as you know, I'm hawkish on these public health actions that there are a lot of people it's not just people are going to die. It's that an even larger number, it, that's, that's plenty horrible. There's a lot of people who are going to suffer. Horribly, and every one of them is someone's loved one, someone's mother, father, child, yes. brother, sister, wife, spouse. Yes. And it didn't have to be this way. And, just, and, and I, I, I don't want to, that's, I really, that's really should be the last word, but I can't help myself. The president had a tweet earlier today, Bobby, about how celebrating how even though cases are going up, deaths are going down, right? As always, the president... Um, misses the nuance, right? The, the pace of new fatalities, the, the derivative is negative, right? But deaths are going up. Like there are more deaths today than there were yesterday and there will be more tomorrow than there were today. That's right. Um, history is not gonna judge any of this kindly. Nope. And on that happy note. Yes, let's judge this podcast kindly. He is at Bobby Chesney. I am SC underscore Vlad. If we are at NSL Podcast, we'll be back, I think next week for our um, pre-July 4th edition. You know it. All right. Um, happy birthday, Bobby. Thank Stay you. safe out there, everybody. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Adios.